0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the note and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have an artist that is on the rise in the world of pop, country, doing a little bit of everything. And she just recently released an album entitled The Process, which you can get in digital and also physical platforms. And she's also an advocate for mental health. So we're going to get into all that and more with the one and only Miss Arizona Lindsay. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, Arizona.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: I appreciate you coming on. and shout out to my boy Law for uh, linking us up and putting us up together for this interview.
1: Yeah, Law's the best man.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Law's a good dude and uh, you can catch his two interviews on Beyond the Album Cover wherever you stream and on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Cover. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Where were you born and when did you first get the music bug?
1: Okay, so I was born here on Long Island um, and I was born and raised in Lindenhurst, uh, which is a small village <laughs> in Suffolk County. And I remember doing music for as early as I can remember and I started my first instrument was drums. Um, I mean I've always sang and and wrote songs uh, but I learned drums as like my primary instrument and then my first experience trying to compose music was singing and playing drums. Okay
0: self-taught or did you do lessons?
1: Um, I was self-taught at all the instruments I play except for percussion. I took I took lessons for that.
0: Okay, now, as far as percussions, you know to do any other percussion instruments besides drums, like congas or timbales or any other forms of percussion or drums was your primary uh, instrument starting out?
1: Absolutely, so yeah, my proficiency up until I was going into college was as a classical percussionist. So my goal was to be proficient in timpani and concert snare, um, but I also played mallets and, every auxiliary percussion you can think of.
0: So do, do it all, huh?
1: Except for the shaker. I have a weird thing with the shaker. We just don't mix well, so.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not musically inclined, so I understand that completely. So in addition to the classical training where you're also listening to the radio and maybe learning back how to play records by ear, or was it just learning what was in the classical training books. And then later on, as you listen to Top 40 Radio, applying those influences to that.
1: Yeah, so I think even my passion with percussion kind of always had these two different directions, right? Cause I would write music where I would sing and play. And that was much more of the like part of me that was really into country, country rock and, Um, I mean, as a kid, I grew up listening to everything. I still listen to everything. And then there was the part of me as a percussionist that took on more of a classical and field percussion side where I found a passion for that too. So I guess I just kind of had my feet wet in all of the different parts of music for a long time.
0: Mm, So dibbling and dabbling in different genres and then cross-pollinizing and and then you have a great mix of great music. Exactly. (laughs) And th- that's the way to be. It's just like having a gumbo. You put a little bit of this, a little bit of that, add it all together. Magnifique! It tastes so good when you uh, have the right seasons and ingredients. Now, you mentioned you grew up in Linderhurst, which is a suburb of Long Island, correct? Yes. So um, growing up in that area, would you say the culture there is a little bit more different as compared to In the boroughs, because when most people outside of New York think of New York, they tend to think of the boroughs, Manhattan, Bronx, Staten Island, and everything else in between.
1: Yes. Um, I've noticed, especially being in New Orleans a lot, that when people out of state, or even upstate, when I was going to school, um, upstate New York, like they would think of Long Island. And I think people just think of what they see on the media. So when they think Long Island, they think like the Great Gatsby and still a movie I've never seen. I've read parts of the book, but, but you know, like I went to school for my undergraduate in Manhattan and I grew up traveling out to Brooklyn to get pizza with my dad and who's from there, my mom as well. So um, I would say it's definitely very different. It's a very different culture, but I don't think that it's uh accurately portrayed by people that are not from here
0: Mm, so set the culture straight what is the culture there like (laughs) just to make sure that we don't misinterpret it when we think of your section of New York where you grew up from where we tend to look at it like we do Manhattan or Harlem
1: yeah so um I would say that um Long Island definitely has like, that's, it's the suburbs for most of it. Um, There's the parts that are closer to Nassau County where it connects more so to the city. Um, But that's exactly how we refer to it here. We're like, oh, this is the island, that's the city. And um, with the suburbs, it's, you know, like streets and houses, it's a little bit more further apart, Um, especially now that I've toured in more Southern states, I've seen it be even more further apart. So... I would say it's like a city suburb. And then the closer you get to the Eastern Long Island, like the Hamptons, like Riverhead, all that out east stuff, that's more like vineyards and farmland and things like that.
0: Mm, And do you know if the New York Islanders are kind of based around that area of New
1: York? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, um, they have the Coliseum. um, I think it's like 45 minutes from where I'm at.
0: Okay, yeah, because I know the Rangers are based in the city and they haven't won the Stanley Cup since ninety four with Mark Messier and crew. Well, at least the Knicks are doing well, and they probably may make the playoffs this year. So, all you Knicks fans out there, your misery will about to be over until James Dolan can get out of the ownership box. I gotta say it, James Dolan. Sorry, dog, don't botch this up. It's so bad that the Knicks been for years, they're probably calling whoopy Goldberg and say, Hey can you redo your role from Eddie because the team is bad but not this year they got Julius Randle, Derrick Rose coach Thibodeau and a couple of other good pieces now you mentioned how when touring in southern states you notice the different cultures culture scenes and then the houses being spread further out I had a similar experience when I traveled up north to New York for the first time I went to Harlem and did the open call auditions for Apollo and what struck for me about New York was that it was so big where keep it moving straight, straight ahead. And it's very get in where you fit in. And the old saying goes, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's
1: what they say.
0: <laughs> mm, you either playing Billy Joe's New York state of mind, state of mind or uh, the Alicia Keys Jay-Z joint and kind of do like your Mary Tyler Moore thing where you toss your hat in the air in the middle of Times Square.
1: Yeah, I, I don't, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the city. I, I, there are parts of it that I like a lot more, but being in places like where there's large amounts of people, it's not for me. Um, I had, when I did my undergrad in Manhattan, I just, I ended up driving, like no one drives from Long Island (laughs) into Manhattan. They take the train and there was just, that for me was a crowd like I chose to drive anyway so I just you know I haven't seen a lot of I guess like the um landmarks that a lot of New Yorkers have
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not everybody's cup of tea so starting now did you ever do the talent show circuit in school or compose original pieces and performed at like an artist showcase
1: Um, I didn't do any talent shows in school uh, until I was in late high school, and I only did it because I was the person who played while the judges were putting their scores together. Um, Just not like a very competitive person, so that felt more comfortable for me. My goal was just for people to hear and see the performance. Um, As far as my own performance uh, career, that started for me when I was around probably around 13, 14, I, I started performing originals that I was writing. And by then I was picking up guitar, piano. Um, and I would perform them at like local cafes and bars and things like that.
0: And so who would you say were your earliest musical influences starting out?
1: My earliest? Um, I would say throughout my career, it's been fairly steady between Taylor Swift, Demi Lovato, um, and then my country rock roots of uh, Faith Hill, uh, Rascal Flats. that's always been, uh, and Brad Paisley. Those are like my idols.
0: Mm, and you can't go wrong with that because the names you mentioned, they had that ability to be able to go back and forth between country and pop. And prior to those names, country and pop didn't really intertwine unless you were the likes of uh, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, or Garth Brooks. So what was your take on having today's modern country be able to mesh into different genres with pop, R&B, hip hop acts such as Florida Georgia Line, Maureen Morris, uh, Keith Urban, Chris Stapleton, the list goes on and on, all of the new modern country artists that's uh, blurring genre lines in music.
1: I think that as long as people are finding ways to put music out there that feels good for them, um, that's all that matters because it not everything is going to be my cup of tea or someone else's, but I think any musician can look at a piece of music and find something to appreciate about it. So um, there's definitely, like every genre, there's certain parts of country where I'm like, oh, this isn't, this isn't like for me. But I really like this about it, and I can really appreciate that the writer did this. Um, I think you know what some of my one well, Shania Twain was one of the first people to like in my eyes to go in and out of kind of that country genre, and then just add in a bunch of other stuff. Um, and she was someone that I also looked as an influencer and uh, to as an influence, I should say. But yeah, I just like I always loved the ability for people to be diverse and do diverse uh, music and diverse things.
0: Yeah, I agree because Shania Twain, huge the come on over album, crossover success on country, pop. Adult Contemporary Radio, and then you mentioned Taylor Swift, how originally she started off full-blown country, but by the time the 1989 album dropped, she was full-blown pop. And when she made that full leap, the CMA was like, we're going to kick her out because she's not traditional country. So it kind of seems like there's that battle between the old guard that strictly want to keep it Old school, like your Willie Nelsons, Jamero Haggard's, and then the new school that grew up listening to everything else and say, "Hey, why don't we mix this and mix this, but it's still country?"
1: Yeah, I, I, I think there's something really magical about really being able to give back to the culture of where things come from. Um, you know, like for example, playing standardized jazz charts is never something that in my perspective is old because it's, it's honoring where that, that music has been. Um, and one of the things that I love about Taylor Swift is that she always incorporates things from those original kind of standards and pieces in whatever genre she's doing. So like, she'll look at, a like a a pop song from X amount of time ago. And you can hear that influence behind that song. And she, she also acknowledges that, which I think is another big piece of uh, the push of, of country music is, you know, moved into obviously incorporating pop or incorporating rock, um, all the different sub-genres that you get. But I think there's obviously a push to obviously stay relevant and where, the corporate music place kind of puts you into pop radio is gonna also be dependent on what you have in your music. So I think as long as you can respect where your genres come from, there's nothing wrong with trying to add new things. In fact, I think that's what makes the music field so beautiful is adding that creativity and diversity.
0: Right, and one thing that I appreciate about the country music fan base is that they're super loyal. If you put out good music, They'll ride with you till the wheels fall off. I mean, your album could go double wood, but they'll still come to see you perform at XYZ County Fair or at whatever concert venue. As long as you put out good content, good product they really support you. Now, as far as your songwriting process, do you prefer to do a lot of stuff solo or are you open to collaborations and you're able to take ideas from different people and say, hey, let's sit, let's merge, or is it more of I'm going to do my own thing?
1: So um, I definitely do typically write alone. And what I do is I try to, especially because of the things that I write about, I try to get all of the authentic parts that I need onto paper. Um, but again, I think one of the beautiful things about, um, the again, bringing in that diversity is being able to take other opinions and feedback without always necessarily Taking it and changing things, I think that's how I was when I first started. You know, working with um, other people is they would say, "Oh, I don't like that," and I'd be like, "Okay, I can change it." (laughs) Um, And so I've learned to be like more receptive in without without putting down all of those boundaries and taking it more of as a consideration, opinion. You know, well, they think this line would fit better. Let me think about that. Let me really figure out what I'm trying to say here. Um, And so I always found it more helpful to do. A co-production where the songs were in and then I go into the production part and I'm really taking in that feedback and making small changes if if I need to to things like the lyrics or whatever it is um, when I started working with Lua um, I had the full album written and he came in um, initially just to do kind of a consulting position where he would listen and give me that feedback from his expertise and I ended up pulling him on as a co-producer because we just we clicked so much. And he'd be like, you know, what if you had this here? And um, I am such an open person. But what I loved about him is he'd be like, you hesitated. I don't think you really want to change it. Don't change it. We're not changing it now. And (laughs) he really helped me bring out who I was versus trying to change that.
0: Right. And like you stated, when you have other people come in and bring their ideas, it's always a fine line because you don't want to come in stepping on their toes and really down their creation because to quote Erica Badu, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my you know what because it is a labor of love and it is your baby. And for me to see a show like Songland where you kind of get a peek inside that process where you maybe have a rough draft of a record and then you take it to someone like a Shane McNally, Esther Dean or Ryan Tedder. And they say, no, maybe I want to put this verse before the hook, change this move it to the pre-bridge. So what normally comes first for you when writing? Does the hook comes first, versus comes first, or does it vary from song to song as far as what strikes you first in the songwriting process?
1: <laughs> you know, I guess I, I would go with the latter. I, I think it really depends on the song for me. Um, my The first song on the album, The Desired Way, um is a very narrative based song about unexpectedly losing my mom and I didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna write a song or um, what do I what melody do I think would pull? Um, it really was just me sitting with a guitar, plucking at strings, and then trying to create some sort of vocabulary around what the heck was going through my head um, after, I think what tends to happen before I write a song is in my life, I've tend to hold a lot in. Um, And so then when it does come out, it comes out in an expressive piece because it feels like the best way to not um, for it not to come out sideways or, you know, what I'm trying to learn how to do now, which some people wouldn't really consider a problem, but you know, like I have gone through a lot of trauma recovery and I'm still in that process. And I think what can be hard is, is learning to be creative and write from those emotions without losing yourself in them. Um, because I think in the past I've almost even let certain things go. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'll write about this later versus maybe expressing myself and being healthy in those ways. So now it's kind of like finding the balance of, Allowing myself to be emotional um, and also still being able to be creative and write about that.
0: Mm, now, with the process album, I listened to it. Very great album. And it brings to me the mind of a lost form of albums that you really don't see nowadays, which is pretty much like a concept album where from beginning to end, it takes you on a journey. It tells a story. And I believe, you know, the art of singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell, uh, Carol King, Joan Baez, and we can go on and on of the great singer-songwriters from the 60s and 70s and how they were able to tell stories. And if you listen to the album from track A to track Z, you were gonna get everything that you needed. So how did you figure, okay, this song is gonna get placed For the opener, this song is going to be in the middle because I believe sequencing of an album is one of the most underrated aspects of putting an album together. You could have a great album, but if it's not sequenced correctly, then it could be all she wrote.
1: Yeah, so first, thank you so much for just like even saying any of that because a lot of i mean i've gotten really good feedback back on the album like the people that have listened to it from front to back have picked up on all of those small things and that feels good as an artist because when you do it you obviously acknowledge that people won't always pick up on the small things you put in and um i've had <laughs> i've had even some fans be like is this song here because this and this and this and i always just say yes because i want them to make it their own but um for me in that process, it was very um, intentional. Um, when I had decided to make the album, I was leaving my first time being at a the Trauma Recovery Center. And I guess I didn't, before I went there, I didn't see any type of future in my life in general um, because that's not, I mean, that's why I was there. Um, and that was around me writing track five which is the sinking ship um, which is about overcoming and not really overcoming but working through um, the struggle of suicide ideation Um, and in treatment that was one of the biggest hurdles that we hit was trying to create this idea that my life could have purpose still and have better meaning than what it's been and not just be a continuous cycle of trauma Um, but I when I left I had decided that I was going to do this album and that was going to be like my focus and when I did that initially that was going to be the last track on the album and I thought about what kind of message that would send to people and then I started putting together this idea of a concept album where I was like people that hear the song have to know that there's a song that comes after it. And they have to know that there's a song that comes after that. And the album even ends with the song, the real you, which is about reestablishing hope because in the, tr- any mental health recovery process, regardless of whether it's trauma or substance abuse or whatever it is, it doesn't just end because you just like feel better all of a sudden. And then you've worked through all your problems. It's an ongoing process. And if you don't have that piece of hope um, or, Moving away from those feelings of hopelessness or helplessness, um, you get stuck in that cycle of just going through all those tracks all over again. And the goal is really to just do your best to keep moving up a spiral staircase.
0: Mm, It's really a work in progress. And did you find in making the album very cathartic for you since it was so uh, open and transparent album where you're putting it all out there for for the world to hear?
1: I think there were times where I would distract myself with the production. Um, but through every step of production was always the integrity of the song. So if uh, someone wanted to, like, if Law would try to edit a drum beat, I would stop and say, okay, but what was the emotion here? I think what was kind of difficult about it was, you know, people would always say, like, how do you, like, write about this or sing this song in public and not cry or not be in touch with these emotions. How could you work in that studio for like the successive amount of hours and not, you know, but the thing is, is like, there's a level of managed association that you do to be able to look at the track from a listener standpoint and say, am I communicating what I want to? I remember the most emotional, more cathartic part for me, like you were mentioning was we were listening through the mixes before it was going into mastering and that was the first time that i think i had uh, kind of became really emotional listening to the album because it felt like you know we got to we literally started on track one the desired way and all i kept thinking was my mom would be so proud of this but yet it's like about her so it was it's a hard <laughs> it's a hard album <laughs>
0: Right, and um, so kind of compartmentalizing because there's this book that my wife and I read called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti where the waffles represent having your different boxes and compartmentalizing how when you pour syrup on waffles, they're each in their own space while spaghetti is all interwoven in and there's really no space to separate. So you're able to have the waffles part where you were able to separate it And then like you stated, when they were going through the process of mastering that, the emotions ran through.
1: Yeah, I really like that analogy. Um, You know, I am a very, I I am very behind ego states theory. And so I think that, um, I think that what I've personally struggled with is maybe over compartmentalizing. And so like, I've learned how to kind of put those two and two together um, a little bit more and I'm still getting better at that, but that's definitely exactly how I approached it was I'm in production mode right now. Um, I can listen to the song later in my car and try to figure out, I always came back into the studio with like a list of notes because there's part of that that you have to do alone and listen to. And then I would consult with Law on his feelings with certain things I wanted to change and so on.
0: Right. Now you mentioned before you got to law, the album was already in the can. Now, did you have a home studio set up um, doing the album or did you go into a studio to do the workings on the album?
1: Yeah, so I started working with, um, we call him Slider, but uh, it's Matthew Einseidler. And um, he was my engineer uh, a year prior to going in. I just started with him at Audio Workstations, which um, is in Islandia. Um, And they're moving like 10 minutes to actually a bigger location now, Um, but they're still on the island. And I started working with Matt and developing that working relationship. And then we had recorded The Sinking Ship and one other song that didn't end up on the album. And then, everything had happened where I was hospitalized and when I got out I said you know I'm ready to work on this album now um but I had that studio set up and it turned out that it was only like 10 minutes away from where Loy lived so when I had asked him to to come to the studio and work on it with me um he was really surprised and now I've actually uh you know somehow (laughs) created a mutual working relationship between them two because now that's his home studio also
0: Okay. And of course, we mentioned law, how we all know law. So how are you able to take his expertise coming from the funk, blues background and mesh that with what you have?
1: I think one of the things that we've both really loved about working with one another is we're so diverse. And I think that he's used to people in the industry, even somehow making that a bad thing. Um, And, you know, like the fans, they love that. Um, But, you know, for him, he was like, you know, everyone always wants to put you into a box. And for me, I would come in and be like, this reminds me of that Eminem song, Um, but I want the concept album to be more like a Pink Floyd album. And like, I would literally like, and he was the only one who ever got all the references that I was drawing. So his diversity really just met my diversity in that. And we just kind of came together. um, And even the groups that we don't even love or meaning artists that like we appreciate, Um, songs that we don't love as much as others. Like we tend to weirdly have the same opinions on things. And when we differ, it's almost just exciting to kind of hear his point of view. I would mention that uh, Lou and I are actually going to be, so I was asked about four months ago that, uh, to, that my, my manager Brim, he set up a, a really cool collaboration idea with Uh, DMC from Run DMC and I was asked to write a song and that we were going to be doing that together and after having such a great experience working with Law I recently last week asked him to co-write with me so that's an exciting project we have coming up.
0: Dope we're definitely looking forward to that when it comes down the pipe and you've been garnering a lot of buzz up and coming artists radio airplay in and around the New York area touring nonstop. so what were some of your favorite markets that you hit touring, of course, prior to COVID and then how now some places and states are starting to open back up more. Where are some of the other place, markets that you haven't hit yet that you look forward to uh, visiting once uh, COVID uh, comes up?
1: I fell in love with uh, New Orleans. I didn't get to do as many shows there as I would have liked. Um, it was kind of right by when the pandemic was hitting. And so the booking was challenging. And I mean, we didn't know what we were going into with the pandemic. We weren't sure exactly what was happening, um, but I was doing a lot of interviews and a lot of stuff like that. Um, but I had I had a really great time playing my show there um, and I really liked, I I would say that's my favorite area. And then New York city was my other favorite area because especially at certain venues, when people come in and they're here to listen to the music that's what they came in for. That's just the best feeling ever because they're really invested in what you have to sing about and what the actual music entails.
0: Right, everybody loves New Orleans and not just for the food. I mean, the food is a plus, but it's definitely a great city that's rich and steeped in culture and music, of course, with jazz being you know, the main thing that everybody knows from New Orleans. And then in reading your bio on your website, I saw that you also toured my home state of North Carolina, mainly around Jacksonville and uh, Charlotte.
1: Yeah, so um, I did stop in Charlotte, and there was supposed to be another show that I was going to set up where my best friend at the time was living, and I didn't get to, um, and that was like right when the pandemic was hitting, so I ended up staying with them for like a week while I was there. So I didn't get to play too much in North Carolina, um, besides that one Charlotte thing, but I definitely would want to go back. I've also had a really big want to go to Asheville. I've heard that that's an amazing music place.
0: Yeah. Asheville is very great. And then also you're not too far from Knoxville, Tennessee. So pretty much the whole Southeast U.S. is a pretty much a great touring market because you got the Carolinas, Virginia, Georgia, Florida. So you can't go wrong in that part of the country.
1: Yeah, I definitely am excited to kind of set up a more stable set of shows in that area. Um, I definitely try to plan my tours around like seeing my friends because they all live out of state. Um, but now it's definitely I mean, and it's a good thing. But with my music career and getting to know more connections, it's less of just like, oh, I want to go here because my friend lives here and set up a show there. <laughs> and it's more of um like I have a show coming up in Las Vegas at the end of the year through one of the nonprofits I'm working with and um, another thing that might be going on in LA. So it's pushing me out of my comfort zone, but it's in a really good way.
0: Right. And how have you been holding up outside of music and in music, you know, because COVID really put a pause on everything. Like people had gigs lined up and that all went to a standstill. And I know how some people, you know, being isolated, how it can have depression and other feelings seep in. So how how have you been able to maintain your center while everything is going on in the world?
1: You know, I, I, I guess it's a, it's a difficult question because there's been so many phases that I've gone through with it um at first i was i decided to actually go back and work more so on my um take the time uh while everything was remote to work more on processing more trauma that i had been through i um with my therapists and my treatment team and that was really helpful and then when i first got out of that i felt like I was they made it they kept putting up this meme of like someone waking up from a coma in 2020 and and like what that would be like trying to explain to them but that's kind of what it felt like because I went in and it was just this kind of small situation that was going on and everything was remote and then when I left you couldn't go out to eat you couldn't go to the cafe you couldn't you know so it was kind of a little bit alarming um but I just kind of switched gears really quickly and I said I'm going to record the album and I I spent most of 2020 in the studio um, that was from the summer to um, the fool. And then I followed that by just going straight into promotion. But I would say that I definitely struggled with, with feeling isolated. I am an introvert. um, (laughs) And so there were parts of it that felt a little bit almost relieving, but I think that people don't realize how much like, having that once a week grad school class where you're in person or, um, that internship or whatever it is that you're doing, how much taking that away from somebody can take away, especially for someone who is an introvert and maybe doesn't go out of their way to interact with people much more than that. Um, how much that can really impact their mental health through time. So now I've been trying to get better at, um, I'm always grateful for what I have, too, and just trying to help other people through this time. And I think that's how I've gotten through it is just trying to kind of redirect and focus on how I can give back.
0: Now, I mentioned at the top of the interview that you are an advocate for mental health. So in your opinion, what is it that you think that the stigma of mental health has been starting to get shattered to where people are more openly talking about their struggles with mental health. You know, we have various celebrities from Demi Lovato to basketball players like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan openly talking about their struggles with mental health and to paint the picture for those on the outside looking in. Just because I'm in the limelight and I'm making money doesn't mean everything is all peaches and cream.
1: Yes. I think um, there's always this, even for me, I sometimes think, oh, well, if I can just be successful with this, or if I can just work out this one relationship, then I will feel better. And I think people forget, I think I forget um, that mental illness just doesn't work like that. And in reality, everything can be fine around you and your brain might still be telling you something different. I know, for me, as someone who has a, I have been very open about having a, a trauma disorder. Um, for me, things going well is actually a trigger because my brain is so used to being in, you know, chaos and having to be in survival mode that the first time that things were actually kind of calm and the waters were settling around me, I was so anxious and and worried all the time, and I remember you know, calling my treatment team and saying, like, I don't know what's wrong. (laughs) Like, usually there's a trigger. And they were like, well, you're so used to having whenever something gets good at going bad. And so um, I think that that was a big part for me. But I think for other people, especially celebrities um, who are open about mental health, they don't have to be, you know, they can continue to do their regular persona and whatever it is that they want to do. It honestly brings more controversy a lot of the time then it does bring um like attention like I think people have this idea that someone comes open about depression that we we just get like fluttered with attention and flowers and and I am supporting you and that's really not the reality of it there's a lot more that goes behind being open and um I really commend anybody who's able to talk about it on their platform because it's not easy.
0: Right, and it's probably even to a more heightened extent now because of social media with the various platforms and how your life literally is in a fishbowl 24 seven with everybody looking at you and hanging on to your every action, your every word and feeling like I can't break away and have time for myself, because as you know, being in the entertainment industry, the name of the game is keeping yourself relevant. And now it's almost at hyperspeed because you're here one minute, gone the next minute, not even tomorrow now, because of how fast content has to be cranked out in order to stay visible and viable to the demographics that you're trying to reach.
1: Absolutely, I think, Social media is one of those difficult things where, personally, I've always had a, a pretty good experience with it. I think um, I've been fortunate in that I've had a lot of support and I've had, I mean, my entire career is, is built off of using music and using my, my knowledge in mental health, rather, that's coming as a, a peer trauma survivor or an academic in the mental health community, because um, I have been going to school for this um, in the past and merging those two and so I think a lot of the reason I have not had to face as much controversy there or push back is because I try to make it about other people um so when someone comments and they're like wow I really disagree with what you said I just you know okay like (laughs) I have nothing to fight with you about because we all have such different experiences but um I would say the more there's like, I think I can name like two times on my hand that I've ever had an issue on on social media personally. And um, as an adult, I mean, and one of them was recently, I mean, I was talking about my eating disorder, which is something that um, is a result of having trauma. And um, it was like the first time that I ever posted like a transition photo from when I was really struggling with my anorexia to now. And I had gotten like one person who had written something like, you know, the way you look is the reason people are scared to go into recovery, um, or something like that. And at first I was upset and then just like sad. And then I was like, you know, we're all in different places of recovery and that just might be a projection. And I think, I think I have to work through it myself. And I know that as my platform gets bigger, I'm going to have to learn how to take the personalness, like out of it, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to really have, you know, the mental health component piece, at least at a point where you can manage it, because when you get into the entertainment industry, it's very cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, ratty, rat chew you up, spit you out. And if you don't have your center straight or know who you are as a person outside of the industry, then it can really take a hold of you.
1: Absolutely. I think. I think that our industry is incredibly difficult to work in for people who have had mental health challenges. But I also think that like any other experience in life, it comes to making sure that there's a good work-life balance, um, having a a good support system, you know, when I'm feeling like that or whatever it is. um, I do connect with like my friends or I'll connect with even i'll connect with law and i'll he's just you know he's always so supportive especially if it's something about the industry um and it's weird it's it's also weird i feel like for people who do have mental health challenges that is part of the stigma that they won't be able to succeed like other people can because they have some sort of perceived weakness that's not true people who have um, different mental health challenges first of all make up a large amount of the population but also have other strengths that people wouldn't imagine. And, um, you know, like their ability to empathize, be compassionate, be really passionate performers, and then learning to deal with other things like maybe um, bad press or or rejection or things that people might deal with on a larger scale at a platform higher than mine, of course. Um, I would imagine that it takes a lot of inner work like you were saying, but also a really good support system having the right people around you.
0: Right. And it definitely makes me reevaluate how, you know, the younger, the performer or entertainer in the business, how it's really not suited for kids. Because if you think about like some of the Disney stars that had public meltdowns, and we're speaking to Demi Lovato about, you know, she's been in the business since she was a little kid on Barney and later Disney and how you, as a young child in the business had to learn to grow up fast. and I think that there should be more provisions in place to protect minor performers when they get into this industry because to quote a uh, big boy from the movie Atlanta, this grown folks business. And you know when you're a kid in that type of business, you definitely got to have extra layers of protection.
1: Yeah, I think the way you worded it surrounding protection and having those parameters set onto what those relationships will look like or should look like, that is a big piece of it because, you know, we talk about child labor laws and things like that, but we don't always talk about those those same parameters when we're speaking about the entertainment industry. Um, I obviously don't have too much experience in that part um, because of, you know, the I wasn't a child actor in that sense. I mean, I did acting, but not on TV. Um, So I think those people that are talking about it have the best, you know, insight onto what those relationships should look like. Um, And I'm hopeful that, or I hope that, you know, the people that run those bigger corporations, that they, um, they give value to that and they do their best to make changes that set up a more healthy environment, especially like things like the supervision and protection like you were talking about. Because I would say that from my standpoint, as an advocate, I look at that like an opportunity to improve mental health for generations that are up and coming. Because if a kid wants to do acting, and they want their that their dream, and their dream is coming true, you know, I wouldn't want to take that away from somebody. But all children deserve some somewhere safe at all times. They deserve protection at all times, and that shouldn't change depending on what their career is or if they're doing a hobby. It shouldn't matter. There should always be that supervision and protection and safety.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And you know, Jay Z just recently came out in a rare interview that he did, I believe, with New York Times, it was saying how. You know, I'm not going to push my kids into the business. I'm just going to let them form their identity. And I think, you know, some parents kind of get caught up in the limelight of, I saw this kid make this much money on this platform. You're going to do this. And you're putting a lot of pressure on someone who maybe wants to go play ballerina or be a firefighter tomorrow. And you're saying, go make this money for the rest of the family. So I definitely agree that more protections and more safeguards should be in place for minors. Now we're gonna switch over and we're going to talk about who is the one artist, or you can name multiple artists that had the most influence on you as a singer songwriter?
1: Demi Lovato and Taylor Swift.
0: Okay, why those two in particular?
1: I mean, I've had a lot of other influences, heavy influences, like Sarah McLachlan is a huge one for me. Alanis Morissette, again, Rascal Flatts, Brad Paisley, Faith Hill, Tim McGraw. Those are all of, when I think of my writing, I think of all of them just kind of being around me in a circle and me being in the middle because I try to take something from every single one of those. Taylor Swift and Demi Lovato hold a very special place for me. Um Taylor Swift in particular, her writing is, I think, I should say my writing can be very similar to hers. It takes on a narrative style, even in a lot of her pop music. And I really love that narrative style. Um, I love how she tells a story and kind of throws in these small details and even if you can't relate to that one small detail, you're still so hooked on the line and what you do relate to that. You could listen to an entire song and be waiting for that one line and you're just like, this is it. I love her ability to be diverse. And I also loved that her influences um, come from kind of, again, those deeper roots in the music that she plays. Like mine, older you know, influences would be like Frank Sinatra, Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole, like you know, all those people. Um, that's what I listen to every morning when I'm getting ready to inspire my day and, and warm up to my day with Demi Lovato. Um, Demi is what got me through high school. And I think that that it sounds so cheesy to say that because other people hear that and they, you know, I don't know her. I've never met her. Um, but when I was in high school and I was really struggling There was no artist talking about anything that I was dealing with, even singing about it in the fashion that I was struggling. Um, And I actually felt like I was really alone and I had not told anybody what I was thinking about or struggling with besides the trauma that I was dealing with as um, going home to what I went home to and to have a celebrity that was out and open and, and talking about things that I thought only existed in my head that you know wanting to hurt yourself or thinking about suicide as an option that this was just some thing that might, was a like a function issue in my brain and then that was it versus her getting up on a platform and saying like this is called this this is what this is and there is something called treatment and it does get better and it could be your environment and it could be that and um i learned about her as an advocate before I learned her music and it just made me want to listen to her music and that is what I try to do in my own career is I try to uh and she always says like it's not comfortable to talk about necessarily and I always tell people the same thing like you just learn to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable because of what it gives back to you which is hopefully helping other people and in that same place who think that they're alone
0: and you mentioned Taylor Swift and we talked about earlier how she was able to blur lines between country and pop and the one thing that I really admire about her is that she's an advocate for artists and how she calls out how the royalty rates for streaming is unfair for artists and then of course recently with the issues with her original albums that were released on I believe Big Machine Records how she doesn't own the masters to those and how she's re-recording those original albums so that she can take ownership and say, hey, I own this and pretty much kind of following the playbook of Prince and owning your content, owning your stuff and saying, you're not going to give me something unfavorable. I'm going to own my stuff, hold my own destiny. And I'm going to make sure that other artists that come after me, don't go through what I went through.
1: Yes. Law is always on top of me about, you know, um, what does it mean to be an independent artist? What does it mean to be a signed artist? And because Taylor Swift is such a big influence of mine, you know, I bring up other artists in the studio all the time where I'll be like, oh, I want to, I want to do this, or I want to be different than this. And I say stuff like that all the time. And law is always, bringing up Taylor Swift, too, because he um, and Demi Lovato, just because of the way that I write and what I do. Um, And I think what is, in my opinion, cool is, you know, we value people. It's one of my favorite quotes. You know, we value people for their ability to be original. So we shouldn't try to copy them. And I think that I take that in great stride of trying to be my own authentic person while also taking the best things that I've learned from the people that have influenced me, including vicariously learning about contracts and all that kind of chaos that can go down. And I've had my small amounts of experience with that already, but I think um, I'm very lucky in that I, maybe maybe it's not luck, but I've worked hard to make connections in the industry where I do have people I can call and say, you know, what does this sound like to you? Have you worked with this person before? And that's but that's
0: a good thing to have. Mm, industry rule number 4080. That's a reference to a trap called Quest. Uh, check the rhyme. So listen to that. For those of you that don't know the reference, what I was getting at, if you know, you know. Now, what is the one album that you have in your collection that people would be surprised that, hey, she owns this record?
1: Oh, goodness. Um... <laughs> OK, you're going to this is kind of funny. Um, So everyone knows that I am so diverse. I listen to literally everything all the way. I'm a pop punk fan, a uh, huge pop punk fan to rap, old old school hip hop. Um, but I do own a Barry Manilow CD. <laughs> hey, man, Barry, yeah. Barry Manilow.
0: I mean, Mr. I write the songs. <laughs> He does. You can't can't go wrong with uh, Barry Manilow. Now, what's the one album that you could have stuck on repeat all day, all night, and not get sick of hearing?
1: I mean, any Taylor Swift record, um, because that is pretty much what I do, is just listen to records on repeat. Um, I keep looking off at my record collection, (laughs) but, um, right now I, I, I always put in the front of my vinyl, like the, what I'm trying to be inspired by in this moment. So I have Lover by Taylor Swift and, uh, a Frank Sinatra album. Um, I would say. It changes depending on where I am right now, like in my life. And so right now for me, the record that I've been listening the most to is one of Taylor Swift's earlier records, Speak Now.
0: Okay. Guilty pleasure song.
1: Um, guilty pleasure. I don't love that term because I think... It has like a negative vibe with it but i would say that maybe most people wouldn't expect it but uh bust a move
0: (laughs) young mc okay hey great great choice you know young mc great record and he also co-wrote funky cole medina for tone loke for those of you that don't know and of course you only find that here on beyond the album cover or you can look it up on wikipedia like you would if you didn't necessarily know it now i want to close out on this what's next for you since we got the album out um what's the next projects that you have coming and what can people look forward to
1: so We have the track coming up. I'm going to be doing a track with the DMC, which is super exciting. Um, And as I mentioned before, as of this past week, I asked Law if he'd be wanting to co-write. And of course he was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited to start working on that. I'm going to be working on um, a music video for the song I didn't fit in anyway, uh, which is uh, later in the concept album for the process. And my endorsement, um, retro stage is going to be helping me make sure that I can bring my image come to life in that video. Um, I have some sneak peeks of the dresses that I'll be wearing for that on my social media, which is very exciting for me because fashion is a really big part in self-expression. I'll be doing some more work with my other endorsements, such as AMI Guitars and Biodynamics. Um, and yeah, those are the main things that I'm working on right now. And as far as where to find me, you can find me on any social media platform. My biggest one right now is Instagram, but I'm on everything. I even just made a TikTok um, and I have a Twitter now. <laughs> um, I feel cool getting to say I have a Twitter cause I didn't, and I don't know, I get to tweet. Um, and you can listen to me on any major music streaming platform, So Spotify, iTunes, you name it, and the album is called The Process.
0: And like I said it at the top, is available in both physical and digital platforms. So get it wherever you can. It's a great album; I recommend it. And your handles on social media are they all the same on all me- platforms?
1: I believe that they're all Arizona Lindsay Music, and then Twitter is Arizona Lindsay. All
0: right, so check Arizona Lindsay out on all those platforms. And like I stated. Go ahead. Get the process It's a great album from beginning to end. It's available in digital and physical. Go to the website It's www.arizonalindsay.com. Is that correct? That is it. Yep. So go there. And also you got any shout outs you want to give before we wrap? Shout outs, you said? Yes. Anybody you'd like to thank.
1: Of course. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This was so much fun getting to talk to you. I was really excited about this. Um, I, of course, want to thank Law for everything that we've just gone through and as friends and as co-producers. Um, my recording engineer, Matthew Einsidler, he's amazing. And again, Audio Workstations is located right here on Long Island. And my manager, Brim, because he is as just as amazing as everybody can imagine he is everybody knows brim
0: (laughs) everybody loves brim and knows brim so shout out to you brim you can catch this interview in digital video and audio platform, wherever you stream podcasts on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover, or on the website, beyondthealbumcover.wordpress.com. Once again, go to www.arizonalindsay.com. Check out the bio, everything that you need there. You can get your physical copy of The Process on there. And if you go to any streaming platform, type in Arizona Lindsay, The Process, you can listen to the album. Listen, rate, review, remember the name, Remember the face, she is going to be a big star. I know it because she already is. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause and a big thank you to Arizona Lindsay for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. So thank you for coming on and you got an open invite to come back anytime.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you.